Welcome to Crossing Faiths, where Christian and Muslim talk religion and politics. I'm Elliot Tillman, and this is a bonus episode in our International Religious Freedom Summit 2024 series. Today, I'm bringing you an interview with Aisha Khan, who represents ex-Muslims of North America. This is an interesting organization because it taps into a less visible portion of the international religious freedom cause, which is defined as the freedom to change, to choose, to believe, to not believe. And uh, the ex-Muslims North America organization is advocating for uh, people's right to not believe. They uh, advocate for uh, Muslims in North America who are looking to leave their faith behind, specifically um, in an atheistic sense, and also provide awareness and information about Muslims around the world who face uh, much greater uh, and often much more dire difficulties with the prospect of leaving their faith behind in any kind of a public way. And so this was a, a really useful conversation. Uh, it was very educational for me. Um, my personal background in the evangelical Christian world, you know, obviously there are people who are kind of shifting their beliefs all the time in that world. And the consequences, um, depending on context, can be more or less severe. But I think I am safe in saying that they're nothing like the consequences faced by uh, Muslims who are leaving their faith behind, um, often because of the, uh, the, the cultural and ethnic and family ties that are associated with the Islamic religion uh, for these people uh, in ways that we might not necessarily have a visceral experience of in the United States. So I really appreciate that Aisha was willing to give me this interview. As a personal anecdote, when I visited the table where Aisha was giving her presentation, um, I was uh, a little bit confused at first. I started talking to Aisha, and uh, beside her to her left, there was a uh, display of Coptic Christian um, imagery and, and information and that sort of thing. So a couple minutes into our conversation, I asked her, so what, where does the Coptic element come into play? And she explained to me that she was sharing a table with the Coptic group because the tables at the Earth Summit were so expensive that neither group could really afford one on their own. And so the table was Coptic Christian on the left and uh, ex-Muslim on the right. And while that's a really beautiful example of the international religious freedom movement's ethos, uh, it also, to me, says something um, a little bit, uh, a little bit critical of how the summit seems to currently be, be set up. Um, John tells me that there were far fewer tables at the summit this year than there were last year, and I would only imagine that cost would be a factor in that. It's important for religious groups of all kinds to be able to make their experiences and insights as visible as possible to the public. And the International Religious Freedom Summit is a unique platform for that. And I think that it would be in everyone's interest 
to do everything possible within reason to make that platform as open and available to any religious or ex-religious group with uh, a legitimate cause to be able to to um, connect with people in, in that context. So uh, without further ado, uh, here is my interview with Aisha Khan from Ex-Muslims of North America. I'm with Aisha, who is from, do you call yourself exmuslims.org? Yeah, so we're called Ex-Muslims of North America, uh, and um, I'm the Director of Operations. I joined about six months ago in this capacity, but I've been um, with XMNA Audit Off for the past about six years. I started as a volunteer and was doing part-time work, um, and then sort of like really enjoyed the work that I was doing, made a career change, and now I'm with them full-time. How did you find your way to the organization? So my apostasy out of Islam um, was a really long journey. So I've always had doubts, which I don't think is very unique to being a Muslim and living in the U.S. Um, but around probably 2014, I started to really examine what Islam was asking of me and I was in a relationship with someone who was not Muslim, and the only way to be able to marry him would be if he converted. And so I had to do a lot of soul searching. And I realized that I was going to be asking him to convert to a religion, change his entire belief system, um, in a religion that I no longer was comfortable practicing. Uh. And not only that, the repercussions for him would be enormous. Um, he would abuse the support of his family. And I just really did not feel comfortable asking him to do that. And so I, you know, I had to, my whole life, you know, my, I grew up in a traditional Pakistani Muslim household. And it was, the restrictions that were placed on me as a woman were more based on, I think, tradition than in religion. But sometimes those two things are hard to separate uh-huh. and I was always really uncomfortable with the role that was prescribed for women in Islam. I've really struggled making that gel with my rights as a citizen of the U.S. versus what was given to me in Islam. Could you unpack a little bit what restrictions you were facing in that context? Yeah, so the ability to marry whoever I wanted in Islam as uh, you know, a Muslim woman is not allowed to marry a non-Muslim man. Uh-huh. Um, a Muslim woman has also a limited uh, capacity to inherit. Uh-huh. Um, you know, um, inheritance is a major issue. Um, her capacity to testify in court is also severely limited. Um, she, uh, you know, if, if her husband fears disobedience from her, he's allowed to beat her. There's actually guidance in the Quran exactly how to deal with a disobedient wife. First, you admonish her, then you leave her bed, and then you beat her. And so that amounts to emotional, psychological, and physical violence, and that's sanctioned in Islam. But if you're a citizen of the United States, 
your husband would go to jail automatically if he were to raise a hand against you, you know? And so those things, I just could not, I could not make them work for me anymore. And here I was in a relationship with someone who I loved, who was not Muslim, and I'm asking him to accept this as the final and perfect word of God. And I just couldn't do it anymore. I, I did try for a little bit, trying to make it work. I, I joined a, a, a masjid or a mosque um, that was led by a gay imam, and that really just felt like I was forcing a square peg in a round. <laughs> and um, then my now husband told me about uh, the ex-Muslim subreddit, and I was just floored. I could not believe that there were other people who struggled like I did. And it's not because I wanted to have sex or drink or eat pork. I just really, really struggled with what Islam was asking me to believe, that this was a perfect and final word of God. And I just could not do it any longer. And I found XMNA, and it would just like snowballed from there. Uh, I got involved as a volunteer, like I said, and then I was doing part-time work. Um, I worked on what, what was our normalizing dissent tour, so we brought ex-Muslim speakers to college campuses to talk about what it means to leave Islam, right. the negatives and the positives, to talk about the, that experience of totality. Um, and that was deeply fulfilling tool. Um, so it was, um, I kind of hung around and then they offered me this full-time position and now I'm here. Wow. What's the, do, do you see it, um, being an ex-Muslim is synonymous with being an atheist, or is there a, a, a spectrum of different changes in belief that take place that you see in your organization? So XMNA focuses specifically on people who leave Islam and don't convert to any other religion. Huh. So we are an atheist organization first and foremost, and we support the pe people to leave Islam and have no belief afterwards. Um, and there are, there have been instances in within, so actually we first started as a support group on Facebook, um, and I've seen throughout the, you know, 10 odd years that I've sort of been involved in this, people who do either go back to Islam, and that's really because they cannot cope with the loss of community and the loss of their family support. And so they have to make a choice and they decide to go back. Or they, you know, choose another faith community or they realize that you know ex the idea of being an ex-Muslim is too extreme for them and so they can no longer be associated with religion but that that's that happens that's a very small minority of people and you know I am sensitive to that um but we we do we do specifically <laughs> um do you try to to be the community that that people kind of leave behind as much as possible? Yeah, so our, our community work isn't as as robust as it used to be, but we used to have um, annual gatherings around Christmas time, um, and then like um, an annual, like a weekend together, and those were just such a blast. And it was, you could see like, you know, how important it is to have people who, who love and support you as you are, yeah. and don't put restrictions on, you know, uh, what, how you feel, what you think, and yeah, and they, people have met their partners at these events. You know, they made lifelong friends, and we've since shut down like sort of like the the main 
um, community groups, but then there have been spinoffs. So they're like regional hubs and those, it's like amazing to see people in Florida and Montreal and Toronto and like the Pacific Northwest, like all hanging out and seeing each other on a regular basis. Yeah. That warms my heart a lot. I'm going to go out on a limb and, and guess that COVID put a dent in those operations. It right did, now. yeah. And then it was just really becoming a challenge to monitor such a large number of people. That's like, a good problem to have. Yeah, <laughs> on one web page. And it was just not, not a sustainable practice anymore. So we sort of uh, broke, you know, ended that one and then encouraged people to have their own regional chapters. Yeah, maintaining, I mean, one of the functions of religion, it... it uh, I mean, in English, the root word of religion comes from the same root word as, as ligament. It holds people together, mm-hmm. right? And so if you come from a context where you're leaving that behind, um, my wife and I, I, I worked for a church for 15 years, and we um, ended up leaving the church because of abuses of authority that were taking place and stuff like that. And for a while, we were trying to do like a smaller kind of home church thing and stuff like that. And then COVID actually just dissolved that entirely is what ended up happening yeah. but it's like you you it's hard to find your sense of identity outside of the group yeah and the the prospect of unconditional acceptance is like the holy grail yeah. <laughs> to, to, maybe that's not the right term to use but it's <laughs> like yeah <laughs> it's kind of, kind of ironic i apologize yeah. but you know it's like oh uh, man uh, when you grow up in a religion religious community you don't know whether people are accepting you for who you are yeah or for what you believe yeah exactly right? How do you, I mean, you're still in contact with your family. Mm -hmm. How how do you navigate that in in your life now? So my family doesn't know about my apostasy, um, but they do know that I, I I assume that that they think I'm very liberal and I'm a a non-practicing Muslim. So they may think that I still identify as a Muslim. I just don't put those tenets into practice, mainly because they know I did not ask my husband to convert. And yeah. that is essentially, that's a huge no-no, right? So I'm living in sin in their eyes. Um, and so they have some idea that I don't pronounce it, um, but they don't know about my activism in this space. Yeah, how, how have they handled that? I mean, with your, do you have kids? I do. I have two small children. I, um, I'm not worried about like any sort of physical or violent threats against me, but I just, I know I would disappoint them deeply. And I know that they would just not be accepting of it. So I'd rather just exist in this gray area, Uh middle space where sort of they think that I'm very liberal and non-practicing and not make them go through the pain of finding out that I'm an atheist and an (laughs) ex-Muslim activist. Yeah advocating for the right for other Muslims to be Islam without persecution. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, um, I, I, I grew up in a, a conservative Christian household. My parents met in Bible school. And um, I just, I, they live uh, in South Carolina, so I talk to them on the phone and stuff like that. But um, they know that I've had some kind of shifts in my faith and theology over the past few years. But my dad still talks to me as if I'm like one of them. Right. Yeah. And kind of tries to project that that spiritual authority over me, and I don't have the heart to tell him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, it, it's 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 easier just to let him believe that I believe yeah. what he does. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's it's almost kinder in that way. You know. 
I, I think so, especially if they're of a certain age and stuff like yeah. that. I, I don't know if it's the right choice, but it's certainly the easier choice. Yeah, I was having this conversation with my sister where I've been like debating whether coming out, like out, out and saying, you know, I am atheist and I am also an activist. Um, and but then I wonder what what my own motivation for that is. Is yeah. it is it to teach them a lesson? Is it to force them to accept the the contradictions of what Islam is and how they live their lives? And, and you know, I don't know. I think it just comes from a place of disappointment because I feel like that they are. I don't want to seem insulted or demean them, but. They're smarter and better than this. That the only reason that they are good people is because they don't follow a song correct, like the way in the way that it's supposed to be correct. Dang. They have become increasingly conservative over the past ten, two years, and it's been just a real challenge to see them almost regress in a way. Yeah. Um, you know, they live in a, in a in a secular, pluralist society, and they are turning increasingly inward. And I just, you know, it, it, it really hurts me to see that, um, for them to, to turn their back on the, the type of, you know, like, they live in a country where they are afforded the, all of these amazing rights. And, and perspectives, and it's almost like they're rejecting that by, by yeah. turning more towards Islam and not recognizing, you know, the brutality of it sometimes. Yeah, becoming more conservative. I think it's a it's a function of age, but also there are pressures in our society. It seems like with all religious groups, yeah, there, there's a, there's a certain pressure towards conservatism. It's a little bit concerning. Yeah, I feel like also you know September 11th really caused a reckoning in the Muslim community because, mm-hmm. you know, I was in I was in college at that time and I saw it firsthand with my peers where they were forced to choose between their Muslim identity and their ethnic identity. And for them, Islam was more clear cut. You know, Islam there's very little gray space if you look at, you know, Orthodox Islam is what the Quran says. Was very little gray space in the way that you can be haters. Mm-hmm. And I think for them, there were a lot of contradictions in their, in their, in their traditions and like being part of South Asian culture that they found that was not, that Islam did, did not permit. So I think it was easier for them to reject their ethnic identity and then embrace their religious identity. And from there, I saw a lot of my peers become more and more Yeah. A lot of my female friends began wearing hijab. A lot of, you know, they began praying five times a day. They began segregating themselves in social gatherings. They, I even had friends who would not attend, like go out to a restaurant, you know, without their brother because their brother was their male guardian and there were other men that were going to be there. Even though that those other men were friends, they were known to them. There were even family members, there were cousins. But because Islam does not permit the mixing of unmarried, you know, people of the opposite sex, they were like, oh, well, I can't go to all the garden if my brother doesn't come with me because there are going to be other men present. Uh-huh. And so it was that sort of regression that I was just like, how is, how does that make any sense? Yeah. Have you been able to keep up 
or catch up with any of those friends in the time since and try to get their perspective on how things have gone? I haven't. Um, I feel like we just, there was a fork in the road and I went one way and they went another. Yeah. Yeah. And it was almost not worth it for me. I also was very confused at that time myself. I didn't know what I wanted from Islam. So I, I just didn't know how to approach the subject. Right. Yeah. yeah. One last question. Sure. Do you ever wonder, like, do you ever think about what it would have been like if you raised your kids as Muslims? Like, just kind of do that thought experiment. Yeah. I do, you know, and it, well, I think the, it's, it's funny you say that because I think the opposite, right? Like, I think. Uh, my children are not Muslim. I'm not going to raise them, them Muslim. You know, my daughter will be able to say what she wants, wear what she wants, eat what she wants, drink what she wants. And those are things that were not afforded to me. Mm -hmm. I always had a very rigid um, like boundaries of what I could and could not do. And to think that I, I get to reverse that for my own daughter and say, you are a whole person and I recognize you and you have, you have rights and you have agency yourself and you can get to tell me no. You know, I love that. I love when she tells me she's mad at me because she gets to say that. Like that is just incredible that she can say, I didn't, you know, you have to say sorry to me or I do like that you did that. I didn't get to say that to my parents. Yeah. You know, I think that's so beautiful. That's wonderful. Aisha, I know this was a bit of a stretch for you, and I really appreciate that you took the time for this conversation. Thank you. Me too. Thank you so much. So we're at uh, crossingfaith.org. At some point in the not-too-distant future, we'll be posting this interview, I'm sure. And uh, thanks again. I really appreciate your time.